Welcome, everyone. I'm Andy Locke Mears, and this is my colleague, Dr. Melissa Sell. Yes, and we are speaking with Dr. Andrew Kaufman today. Welcome, Andy. It's so great to see you again. It's great to see you, Andy. Yes, and this is our second teleconference that we're doing together, and we're sharing German new medicine with, um, with Andy. And I'm going to say it slowly because we had some people say last time, what did she say? It's German <laughs> new medicine. So GNM, it's also called Germanische Heilkunde, which is GHK, Germanic Healing Knowledge. So that's what we're talking about today. <laughs> right, so not new German medicine, right? German new medicine. German new medicine in English. Yes, that's what we say. So we thought we would start today, we would talk about some case studies. So you can see real world examples of what we're talking about. All of us experienced GNM and we don't realize that we do. So we wanna really illustrate that for you. So what we're going to do is I'm going to share with you something called the two-phase diagram. And this is from Dr. Hammer, what he developed. And you should see it right there. It says biological special programs, two-phase pattern. We all experience this. I'm gonna do this in a nutshell because we really wanna to get to the case studies. So what occurs is when we have some sort of conflict shock, something that occurs in our life that's upsetting, we then have what Dr. Hammer called a DHS. And that's a conflict shock and it impacts in a circle in the brain. Literally our psyche says, uh-oh, this is a danger. We might be in danger. We need to adapt to this danger. So it starts a biological program. One of three programs begins when that lesion impacts in the brain. Cell growth, somewhere in the body. Cell loss, somewhere in the body. Or functional loss, somewhere in the body. The reason we start one of these programs is to help us better manage this conflict and resolve it so we can get back to our lives. So it's a survival mechanism. What we know though is we're upset. We're not aware of oh, I lost a few cells in my liver last night. We don't have that ability to know that. What we know is that we're upset. Let's say we just lost our job and we're now conflict active and that is the blue phase. We're growing cells, losing cells, losing functioning. Let's say we get a new job two months later. So we were conflict active for two months. As soon as we have the new job, that conflict resolves. There's no need to create more cells, lose cells or lose functioning to help us manage it, we're done with that. And that's called the CL right here. That's the resolution. Now we enter the second of the two phases and this is called the healing phase or the post-conflict phase or the repair phase. We enter it in phase A. If we grew cells when we're conflict active, we're now going to break those down because we don't need them anymore. There's pain, swelling and inflammation with that. If we lost cells for two months, now we'll replenish them. Again, pain, swelling and inflammation with that. If we lost functioning in a, an organ part or tissue, now we regain functioning. So as you can see, we're down below the line. This is our nervous system. Above it is our daytime nervous system. Below it is our nighttime nervous system. And so now we're tired. Instead of being in a sympathetic, we're running from a saber-toothed tiger, now we're tired. And in the second phase, we're now returning to homeostasis. So pain, swelling, and inflammation. At some point, the edema, the swelling in the circle in the brain, which is there to protect it, or on the organ level, 
we're done with that. We no longer need to protect the brain or the organ. So now we get rid of it. And that's called an epileptoid crisis. It's nothing more than pushing out of the liquid in the brain. After that, there's scarification in the connective tissue around the circle in the brain and on the organ level. And then we're back to our day-night cycle. So that's it in theory. And now we want to relate this to real life. And Andy, do you have any questions? Well, I thought, um, I, I was wondering if I could just kind of summarize that in, in a different way and see if I'm getting it right. Please do. So what I see you saying is that there is some kind of insult that we call a conflict shock, and it usually is a, a, a very significant stressful event that we experience. And it, in some level, threatens our survival or our safety or the integrity of our body. And then our brain registers this, even physically, and initiates like a biological program of sorts that tries to compensate in some way to improve our ability to survive or ward off the stressful situation. Um, and this can actually be a perpetual state, but if we're lucky enough that the situation resolves, then our body basically just counteracts that reaction and gets us back to balance again, uh, you know, our homeostasis. Yes. Yes, that was perfect. <laughs> okay, great. I'm glad I understand. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Awesome. So should I move into the case? Please do. Give us an example. All right. So this is a case of a young woman in her mid-30s who had been dealing with chronic allergies for like 10 years. And she was just so frustrated and annoyed with the constant, like she could never breathe through her nose for like the past 10 years. So when looking at her timeline and looking back at when this issue first began, she connected it to, she um, was married at the time and had a young child, and she began to suspect that her partner was cheating on her, and he was off on a, on a business trip, and so she got suspicious about um, what he was up to, and so that's when the sinus issue first began, and she had since left that relationship and got into a new relationship, but this cycle was still continuing, and so we got into a discussion about her perception of her current partner. And so she was still suspicious, even though she didn't have reason to suspect her new partner whenever he was at work or if he took a little bit long or if he was, you know, on his phone, she had this pattern where she would react with suspicion, even kind of jokingly or playfully, but still she was suspicious of what he was up to. And so we connected this to her chronic stink conflict. So this stink or a scent conflict, it is um, a pattern that's from controlled from the cerebral cortex. You know, the sinuses are lined with squamous epithelial tissue. And so during the active conflict, when you're suspicious, when you're trying to like sniff out <laughs> this scent, this potential suspicion, there's erosion, like Andy said, cellular loss during the active conflict. And so we're widening the sinuses, taking in so we can breathe in more, so we can sniff out this potential danger or suspicion. 
And then when, you know, husband comes home, everything seems fine, resolve the conflict. And we're, we're, we're here together. So obviously you're not cheating on me when you're here with me. Um, and so this conflict kept going on and on and on and reactivating um, at intervals. And so that's why she's having these on and off symptoms for forever. And doesn't matter all the allergy medication, all the things that she was trying to, you know, clean up her environment or do, is there mold here? Is there something I'm allergic to here? But no, it was a chronic conflict that she was reactivating. And then on top of that, she was also activating it in response to her actual symptoms. So not being able to smell and she was so frustrated. So she was annoyed with her symptoms chronically, also suspicious of her. And so it made perfect sense that this was just a continual loop. And so um, what we did during our session was break down the, you know, practical. Is your husband actually, is this something you actually really need to address? Because that would be the first and easiest. Find out, is it happening? Do you need to leave this relationship too? And then if not, then we have to go to work on your perception, on your chronic assumptions, your mind reading, the things that you are doing to reactivate this conflict again and again and again. And so after working on that and working on her reaction to her symptoms, she was able to go from taking allergy medication every single day down to once a week. And it has only progressed and gotten better and better as she's understood that when she is having this experience and telling this story in her mind and experiences sense of suspicion or frustration or annoyance, that that constitutes a message to her nervous system causing her sinuses to adapt. And so by her seeing the program, her making these connections and then making inner shifts within her perception, uh, she's been able to downgrade this conflict significantly. And so that is, that's the case. Well, Melissa, that's really fascinating. Um, you know, and something that just makes so much uh, sense, right, at a kind of common experience level. Um, one thing I was curious about, because uh, Andy was describing the, uh, the two phases and the onset of everything, right, is called the DHS, right, Dark Homer Syndrome. And do you, like, because in this case, right, you could sort of deduce that there was a suspicion of jealousy uh, of some sort, but could you, or is it necessary or helpful to pin it back to like a moment in time that initiated that? Um, right? Because you didn't mention that specifically, but is that like, I know from, for example, working with people who have panic attacks um, or uh, like PTSD trauma related uh, type of disorders. And of course, those are psychological disorders I'm talking about, but nonetheless, it's like, there's always, you can pin it down to, I mean, not everyone can remember this, of course, but in many cases, you're lucky and you can find out like, oh, it's this one specific thing that occurred, you know, when my mother locked me in a room when I was five years old and I had to pee, right? And, uh, and I ended up peeing my pants, right? And so like that was the cause of the panic attacks, for example. So do you have similar things uh, like that in these cases and are they useful? Yes. Often you want to try to find the first time that you picked up on this shock, this, this DHS, the shock and trauma. You know, so in this example, uh, we were able to trace it back to this first time that she developed this suspicion where she's home with her young child and she's having, you know, this, it comes to her mind, this might be going on. And so this realization um, was a moment in time. Now that has extrapolated out over 10 years. And so there've right. become all sorts of tracks that remind her of 
that original DHS, that original trauma. And so it is very helpful to find that moment in time um, because that is often something that needs to be addressed or worked through with the conscious mind in order to you know, come to terms with it, make peace with right. it, forgive, release, make some kind of internal shift surrounding that originating situation. Now, if a person can't remember the originating situation, I believe that there's a lot of ways that you can work on the things that you are aware of. And I always tell people to, you know, if you need to see something, trust your subconscious mind, you know, like ask your subconscious mind to reveal yeah. to you the moment in time when that shift happened. And if there's something you need to see, you'll, you'll be able to see it. Cause sometimes people will get a little, you know, in a state of despair. Oh, what if I can never find the originating um, DHS? Does that mean I'm doomed to forever deal with this? And I don't believe that that's the case at all. I believe that, you know, if you need to see something that you, your, your subconscious mind will deliver it to you. Right. And there, you know, there are many techniques actually that are, you know, out there to do this kind of thing, like, you know, simple uh, stream of consciousness or contemplation or meditation exercises. There's dream work that you can do, right? All free associations, all kinds of things. And a lot of this comes from psychology, but I've experienced many times that just having the intention of trying to figure this out, like with a, you know, the a passion that you want to learn about yourself, you want to heal yourself, that with a concerted effort like that, that in time, the answers do come clear. And sometimes it happens uh, surprisingly quickly, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Just when someone is willing to ask that question. Absolutely. I totally agree. Yep. Asking the right questions and then allowing your, your brilliant mind to, to let it drop in, like create silence. Meditation is amazing for resolving conflicts, for seeing novel solutions to conflicts that you're not sure how to resolve. And so I think that leaning into trusting your mind, trusting your higher self um, to guide you as you are resolving conflicts has been super helpful. And I recommend all of my clients uh, work with meditation because it's that, you know, the silence so much speaks in the silence. Absolutely. Silence and stillness. That's, that's my definition of meditation, actually. Um, but I was curious about one more thing. And what, uh, how did her husband take this uh, theory about her sinusitis? I don't even know if she shared it with them, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's one of the things, you know, as, as far as like, do we blame the person who causes the conflict within us? And that's a, I think, a very interesting topic of conversation because, you know, I don't think that we can necessarily cause a conflict in another person. We can be an initiating um, invitation, but it all comes down to the individual's personal perception. And so to start, to start a blame game of, you know, it's, you need to <laughs> tell me where you are all the time so I don't have a sink conflict. You know, that's um, outsourcing your personal responsibility to someone else and saying it's your fault that I am the way that I am or I'm having these issues. And I don't find that to be the most empowering position. So um, I'm not sure if she even shared it with him. <laughs> well, you know, I'm so glad you answered it that way because it's such a common uh, misperception, right, that people blame others for their own feelings and experiences, right? And, and really, I mean, if you, if you look at this honestly, it, it's always your choice. It's always your reaction, right? You choose to have a relationship with that person. You chose to react a certain way. And, you know, and also when, when people mistreat each other, right? It's also, generally speaking, that's not personal either. 
right? It's like that that behavior comes out of their own dissatisfaction or turmoil or stress, and it's not because you did something, <laughs> right? So it's like important both to accept responsibility for everything that you experience and also, um, you know, encourage other people to accept responsibility, you know, or for their actions and, and feelings, et cetera. Absolutely. I think we often find that the people who are drawn to GNM are the ones who are ready to take that step in personal development. If they're not drawn to GNM, they're not ready yet. Yeah, I agree with that. Totally, so true. So I've got another um, case, and this one's really super interesting. And it's a very, it's a brief case, and it's a really quick story, but it is, it reveals the response that we have when we're caught off guard. And so this is a story of, um, so it was a young mother and she was having a stressful day. And so she left her, her toddler downstairs with her husband so she could have some, some alone time. And the, the toddler snuck upstairs and the, the mom was just so annoyed with the husband for not um, keeping the child uh, downstairs. And so like when the toddler comes in, the mom kind of had a moment. She freaked out and you know she, she called it a bad mom moment. And, um, and the child just screamed like someone was hurting her. And she was so hurt by this, like this momentary rejection of mommy, mommy, and you know, mommy's upset. And so there was this response. And then the next morning on both of her palms, she had like eczema, like a rash on both of her palms. And the mother related it back to the separation conflict, this reaching out, this wanting contact with the mother in that moment and this this shock of I can't touch my mother or I'm being rejected. And uh, and it showed up the next day as a rash on the hands. And wow. So the, the biological program there was cellular loss during the active conflict. So the when the child has this realization that I'm being rejected, I'm being, I'm separated from someone I want to touch, there's erosion within the, the tissue of the hands. In this case, it was both hands. It was a, you know, because it was where she was reaching out, this physical point of contact that she was looking for. In an attempt to help, there was numbing. So the, the purpose of the, the cellular loss in the separation conflict is to numb. When there's short-term memory loss, which we'll get into along with that as well, to kind of forget this, you know, this person that you're wanting contact with that you can't touch in the moment. So the cellular loss, once that conflict is resolved, once mom comes down and we're cuddling again and everybody's, you know, all touching and everything's fine, there was tissue restoration. And that's what was being seen as like this inflamed rash on the hands the next day. You know, the uh, both of these cases that you brought up so far, they really highlight some of this sort of like, maybe you might call them basic uh, needs that we have right? Um, sort of, you know, security with your uh, partner um, and, uh, you know, with your parent. And, you know, it seems like very logically connected, right? Because it's like wanted to touch the mother and then the hand was affected, right? And the other one like smelling out an intruder, right? Is it always that kind of obvious story or are some of these things a little bit more abstract and uh, complex in terms of this kind of chain of causation to the ultimate, you know, disease manifestation? It can be more complex and nuanced, but often 
uh, I find that Dr. Homer's descriptions are so accurate that somewhere along the way, you can find something that is very, that, that lines up perfectly. Even if the person can't see it at the time, when you look back on the story, you see, and this is why, you know, defaulting to the, the five biological laws. And if the symptom is showing up in this way, this was the conflict that was experienced. Even if consciously you're not making the connection, you're not seeing it in the moment, when you put the story back together. If I'm exhibiting this particular set of symptoms, that indicates that my psyche, my primal self did have this conflict. And then you can kind of work in, okay, so I wasn't really thinking of it in this way, but I can see how my body perceived this trauma, this shock in this particular way. And so I've found that ultimately you can get back to that kind of obvious story of this is what was experienced. This right. is how the body adapted, which I find to be so cool. And I, I mean, my mind is consistently blown by GNM at weekly, all the people that I speak to. And when I hear the story and we make the connections and we use the work, it's like, it all makes perfect sense. So something like eczema in the second case, is that always related to an abandonment type crisis? Is it, I forget what you called that. Always some type of separation conflict. So that's either missing contact with someone or something that you want to have contact with or wanting to separate from someone or something. And is that all different kinds of skin problems or the ones just associated with tissue loss? So all of the skin, like of the, like the epidermis um, is going to be some type of separation conflict. The really? deeper wow. layer of skin, um, yeah, so all the different manifestations are different kind of flavors, you might say, of conflicts. And so that's where, you know, we get into very unique nuances of, you know, eczema versus psoriasis versus measles breakouts or, or uh, like chicken pox. That are all different flavors and sensations of separation conflicts. Wow, that, that's really, really fascinating. I mean, because... You know, in, in regular like mainstream medicine, they really have no idea about what causes virtually any skin conditions, right? right. And you know right. that if anyone who's been to the dermatologist, right, 95% of the time, you'll walk out of there with a, some kind of steroid cream, yep. <laughs> right? And it's kind of the, the cure-all. But so it's really interesting because I always thought, okay, this is just a blanket remedy because they don't really know, but it, it kind of fits in a way. Now, I know that steroid cream doesn't address separation conflict, but the fact that the underlying etiology is the same for all these skin conditions and they're using one treatment is kind of a little bit ironic, uh, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it is. So I'll share a epidermal separation conflict as well. And this is in a 65-year-old man. And so this one, Melissa had mentioned, yeah, sometimes it can be more complicated. And mm -hmm. that is true for this case. So this is a 65-year-old who, when he was about 17 or 18, started to have some skin issues. And he had this eczema. It was on the back of his knee. So in talking with him, we came up with several separation conflicts. Nothing was super definitive. It happened after a hunting trip. He always called it the creeping crud. He thought that he touched something that just got on him and was now infecting him. We never really figured that out. But over the years, over the next many years, he had other separation conflicts. 
and he had different patches of this all over his body, not every single part of his body, but sometimes, you know, the elbow or the knees or his torso on his face, on his nose. And he just couldn't figure this out. He tried all kinds of things. His doctor put him on some methotrexate. He had horrible reactions to them. That's and, a chemotherapy drug for anybody out there who's not heard of it. Yeah. So he was put on other steroids and he had horrible reactions. So he decided, well, I'm not going that route at all. But that does take its toll when you do that, when you put a steroid on or something that will stop the healing phase. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm always telling people about any anti-inflammatory type preparations, right? That they're really anti-healing preparations. That is absolutely correct from a GNM perspective. Yes. So, and they do their damage. So now we have to recover from that damage. Plus we still have to hope that this tissue can resolve, you know, and create healthy tissue again. Oftentimes it can, sometimes it can't. Years go by, he learned German new medicine. By this time, he and his wife were living in a sort of a planned community that was church-based, faith-based. And it was a fairly close-knit community. They lived in close proximity. It wasn't a cult or anything, but it was, it was a little bit out there. You know, people in their town were like, oh yeah, you live there. They lived there for many years and there were a lot of conflicts within this closed community. And it was just icky stuff that went on for a number of years. And his eczema just continued to get worse and worse throughout his body, on his skin. And that's all cell loss in the conflict active phase. And then the eczema shows up in the healing phase. That's the rash. A year and a half ago, he and his wife moved away from this community, moved to a whole different state, and when they did, everything cleared up. Wow. That's how so that, that is the elusive geographic so, cure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they noticed it within weeks of moving away. It's like, oh, you know, I'm not itching as much. Things are getting better. And, you know, it didn't take that long, a few months, and it was, it was healed. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, most people might walk away from that and say, well, there must have been some mold in the house that I was living in, right? Or, or something else. And those things can cause illness into themselves, right? Just like we talked about the steroid cream. But, you know, this is quite an interesting situation. And, um, you know, the it, it also points to the difficulty of living with uh, people in a community. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it might be a little more difficult than you realize, you know, going into it. Absolutely. So now I want to share a story. I want to get into some dementia because that's so common in our culture today. Melissa had already mentioned that there's short-term memory loss with this. And that is very true. And so if you have one single conflict, a separation conflict, there can be some short-term memory loss. It can be more pronounced depending on if the conflict shock was intense and the conflict active period was also rather intense. If it's a child that experiences this, this child may have a label of ADD. And that's the short-term memory loss that goes with the separation conflict. If a person has this and they're elderly, they will have a label of dementia. So you're saying it's the same conflict that results in the skin problems? Yes, it is. So is there a correlation between these skin issues and dementia? I mean, are they a continuation of each other or are they separate reactive? 
should be some different individual. You'll always have short-term memory loss when you have a conflict active phase occurring because it's it's your body saying, let's protect you. Let's forget about this person that you're separated from. You'll have then short-term memory loss. Well, if you're an older person, the chances are, you know, your spouse has died or things like that, then you're maybe aren't going to resolve that as easily as maybe a child could, or at least someone who knows GNM. Again, once you pr you're put on some ADD drugs, then you're stuck in a hanging healing. So this is something that so, can't resolve. So Andy, why do you think over the last half century, we've seen such a dramatic increase in these types of conditions? If it's, you know, because certainly we had uh, separation conflicts before, right? And there have been massive wars and migrations and famines and such. Right. Um, so what, what, uh, what's different now or what are your, what's your uh, sense of how to explain that phenomenon? My sense of that is that because we have such a mobile society, we tend to move further away from our, our pack, our family than we ever have before. And it's much easier to move far away. Whereas in generations past, you had three generations, four generations under one roof. So, and then of course it occurs to me that the way things are going with technology, right, to further separate, right? Like, I mean, while we were getting things ready, Melissa and I were talking about our practice, right? And we both work with clients through technology, like not like it always was in the past, right? Where people come to your office or your home um, and you, you know, you're there with them in person. And so it totally makes sense. I mean, I, I was actually wondering if you were going to have an answer for this, but that that is exactly, you know, a great explanation because we really have been separated from each other in a system, you know, wide culture-based, um, you know, uh, phenomenon here. So, right. wow, that's really mind-blowing that that could be the explanation for this. Absolutely. You know, it's really fascinating when you take GNM and you look at a, um, a country and what they're going through, and then you look at their healing phase afterwards. You, you always see it. It's very obvious. So what is the... I'm just occurring to me that, you know, we're all being, have been put under this massive uh, stress because of lockdown policies and, and things related to that. So, you know, what type of pathology do you expect to see, um, you know, once this situation reaches some kind of resolution? That's a great question. We're, we're seeing that now because we see the rollout of the people who are conflict active, and then when they resolve it, that's when they have the symptoms. That's when they're diagnosed with COVID. And, and so we see this rolling of people versus conflict active versus healing phase, and whether they are believing in this or not. I think that's a really big key. The more that people believe, oh no, stay away from me, they're conflict active. Right. You know, under all the lockdown, they feel safe. So now they go into the healing phase. Whereas if they're out and about, they're conflict active. No, don't get near me. I'm, I'm afraid of this. I don't want to catch this. So this means that in their mind, if they believe that the, you know, whatever this vaccine technology, genetic technology is going to, um, you know, really benefit them, then that will actually resolve their conflict, right? So that's right. Then it's not surprising to see a lot of expression of illness and even death, right? within a short time after receiving the vaccine. Yeah, the vaccine simply complicates the whole process. The right, process. it adds yeah. toxic material to the mix. Yeah. Exactly. 
exactly yep wow yeah i mean there's so yeah. there's i think a huge range of like you see the like we talked about last time with the isolation people being isolated not being able to go out not being able to connect with people so we've got separation potentially with rashes we have um water retention with feeling isolated and abandoned a lot of people i've been speaking with um they feel isolated in their perspective because they're not buying into it but most yeah. of their friends and family are and so they're you know more than ever their their views they've become the black sheep and so they're they're not being invited to you know family zoom calls because they don't agree with the general narrative so right. there's another conflict there's the actual wearing of the mask with the you know the suffocation conflict and that can be you know very primal even if a person is like oh the, the mask is keeping me safe just the restriction of breathing in and of itself could manifest as a conflict of suffocation causing right. adaptation within the lungs and so right. there's i mean i think any and all conflict self devaluation i can't go to the gym i can't work out i'm not doing the things um that feel good to do i i can't you know work my body i feel like i'm gaining weight and so i'm feeling like a piece of crap and so i'm devaluing myself right. and so it's, there it's like, are uh, I mean, it's the perfect storm, yeah. really. Right, right. It sounds like one of those perpetual negative feedback loops. Right. And, you know, it really fascinating. I wish I had thought of this uh, earlier because, you know, like the mask, for example, you see how it can cause multiple conflicts because I've, I've certainly seen and, it, and it's mainstream knowledge that it causes skin problems. Even at the local farmer's market here, there was a booth that was selling, you know, mask me products, right? Acne for masks. Oh my God. You know, I, had a, I had a little fun because I went up there and I said, I know what can prevent, uh, you know, mask me. And she's like, oh yeah, what? And I said, not wearing a mask. <laughs> <laughs> but, but nonetheless, right, it would cause that because it separates you from other people. You can't see their facial expressions or read their emotions or see their identity even, right? So, and then on top of that, the suffocation conflict, which would cause, you know, different pathology or a different type of illness. So, you know, we're really being barraged and, you know, what you described, Melissa, about being alienated from your friends because they believe and they're in fear of, you know, an imaginary illness. Like I, I, that's definitely my experience, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I, a lot of people are surprised because maybe they think that, you know, like, uh, I'm very respectable, but even my own family, I am the black sheep in many ways because of this. So, you know, it takes it, its toll and I'm really aware of this and I have a new community of friends, but I don't think it's completely resolved for me. Exactly. And it's, it's a matter of navigating when we do go into the healing phase, finally, what will that look like? And, you know, how do we navigate that? How do we support our body knowing that we're now in a healing phase, a repair phase? and allowing that process to take place in a natural way. Once you become aware of the, the cause and how are you able to really bring about a resolution? Because there's some things that may kind of naturally resolve. If there's a, a natural disaster, for example, I, it, it happens, then there's the rebuilding effort and then there's back to normal. But some things like that sting conflict situation from earlier, that may not obviously resolve over time. So how, how can you bring out the conflictolysis and what do you do from there to try and reach that full healing potential? 
And that's what we do as GNM consultants is that we're that person to help our clients all pinpoint what's going on and how do we resolve it. Most people who come to us have been to many doctors, they've been to functional medicine doctors. This is something chronic that's going on. It's not just a single program. It's something that's repeating. They're on a hamster wheel. And so we have to look at it and start that conversation and have them looking at themselves in a whole different way. And once they do, there are times when it simply resolves instantly right in our office. It is absolutely uh -huh. fabulous. Other times it takes a little bit more work, especially if there's short-term memory loss going on. They're a little bit maybe more scattered and they're not remembering as well. So that might take a little bit more work and it might take a family member to help with that as well. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Do you wanna say anything there, Melissa? Oh, well, yes. Yeah, just like you said, Andy, I agree that it's it. Conflict resolution can take so many different forms, depending on the individual. And so there's this like flexibility of, you know, it may not be just think about it in a new way. You might need to get all of your senses involved and take you back to that time. And what about it caused you to feel unsafe? And how are you reactivating this unsafe feeling outside of your awareness? My work really, I, I focus on developing awareness. So let's bring all of the stories. Let's bring all of the, the, the subtle perceptions and the meaning assignment and the things that I'm creating inside of my mind without even realizing it and making those connections and asking myself, okay, what message is this perception sending to my body about my safety, about my okayness in the world, about my ability to create the things that I want. And so it's a lot of like reprogramming of the mind, of giving your body messages that you are safe, of reframing things that are going on. So if it's something that can't practically resolve, the practical resolution is always going to be the best because it's the easiest. It's oh, the thing's over. You can breathe the sigh of relief. But if you've gotten into a pattern where you're habitually or chronically seeing the situation through a certain lens, we got to look at the lens and shift it. And that may take time. That may take repetition. That may take, you know, a big insight or like Andy's at a conversation with a family member, something to help break down whatever is keeping this stuck in your psyche. And so I, yeah, I take an approach of experimentation, trying lots of different things. You know, the, the consultants through USA GNM, we've got a lot of different people who use a lot of different modalities. Some people will use uh, physical interventions and use things like, like acupuncture or physical body work to help somatically release something that's tied up with this conflict or um, eye movement work, lots and lots of different right. um, techniques and yeah, modalities. Like just... biofield tuning could be a useful way to look at that, right, right with the um, tuning forks. Yep. But essentially what you're describing here is like an active change process. Right. And I mean, this is what, you know, psychotherapy was really developed also to accomplish, but in practice, people don't actually do it. <laughs> right. So, right. you know, what you were saying earlier about wanting to have a really motivated client is super important because they're going to have to do some fumbling and find a path to bring about this resolution. You can't spoon feed it to them. You can't write a prescription or give them a shot. Right. And even if you do support it, with Reiki and acupuncture and other modalities, those things are not going to take the place of doing the work. They're only to enhance the person's efforts, right? right. So, so yeah. this is, you know, really, really key in all of the 
healing modalities that actually work and are actually built upon our nature as biological organisms all require us to take an active role to realize that the cause was something that either we did consciously or subconsciously, that it's not from some outside force, right? And that the only way to achieve a true health in the future is through our own understanding, effort, and practice. Yes. And I think that's ultimate empowerment for the individual is to see that it was never the outside source. It was never the outside thing. Even if the diet change or the exercise coincided with something resolving. It was the, it was the nutrition. It was the changing that, that, that caused the change in my health problem. We have to look at all of the things that changed about you that allowed you to adopt this new diet and stick to it. That's right. Because you have to believe that you're capable of healing that way. You have to say, my body is important. I'm going to treat it with more kindness by not putting poisons in it as much, right? Things like that. And that of course, changes your attitude about things and may even resolve certain conflicts just by those actions themselves. And you just give credit to the physical substance of the food, right? And not all the other aspects of it. Right. Yeah. I saw that a lot, even in chiropractic work, when I was transitioning out of doing like hands-on physical work and moving into doing GNM work full-time, you know, I saw that it like a person who goes and they, they purchase a care plan of uh, chiropractic and they, they're starting to do all sorts of things and exercises, they feel good about themselves. And so if the musculoskeletal problem they were dealing with was this chronic self-devaluation where they've never done anything good for themselves and they feel bad about themselves, here they made this, you know, this investment of money and time. And every time they go into the office, they're, they're told that this is the thing that's going to help you and make you better. And so there's like this belief component of understanding, oh, I'm doing something so good for myself and an expectation of getting well. And also a reframing of symptoms of, oh, you might be a little more sore before things get better. And so that whole framework allowed me to see how, you know, even if a person was getting adjustments, the physical intervention, they had to change as a person to go through that process because I've also seen people pay the, (laughs) pay the money, but they didn't believe that they were going to get better, you know, or they were skeptical and it didn't work for them. It's like, well, why didn't it work? Were you not fully on board with the process? And so that's where the individual perception is everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen it work in reverse also where, you know, someone has some belief about themselves and they're doing something that would be therapeutic, but doing it way too much or in an unhealthy way. And then it causes other health problems and they never realize it because they think of it as a, a healthy intervention. Absolutely. And with GNM, it allows us to kind of help our clients. We can zero right in on how much is, is good, you know, so that they don't overdo it. They're not doing things that are going to be detrimental to them. So it helps us to really fine tune how we work with everyone. Totally. I had a person who, you know, she was taking tons of supplements because she was going to various different natural health doctors and they had her on like a bin full of supplements. But she was at a point where she was having a, I, I can't swallow conflict and reflux and all sorts of stuff because she physically was having such a hard time getting down all these horse pill supplements. And I'm like, you know, you've reached a point where, you know, the benefits of these supplements potentially, they are, you know, your conflict of not being able to swallow them. We have to look at that first and like 
Let's cut out the supplement, get you feeling like, okay, I don't need to choke down all these supplements in order to be okay, because there was that belief and idea. If I don't take the supplements, I won't be okay, but I take the supplements and I don't feel okay while doing it. And so seeing that pattern is so powerful and allows you to cut things out and not overdo things that really are reaching that point of diminishing returns. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally see that. It's like, you can kind of really become your worst enemy without even realizing it. Right. It's our society. Oh, a little bit's good. So therefore a lot is going to be better <laughs> and it isn't. Absolutely. You can illustrate that point from this really bad Christmas movie where the child is about eight years old and they put so many clothes on him in the winter, right? That he can't even move. Right. Yeah. And he's really warm, but completely immobile and then gets knocked over by all the other kids. Right. right exactly. So I'd like to share another case study. This is a getting back to epidermis and then we'll switch to another kind of dementia. This is an ADD child. This is a girl who is 10 years old who developed psoriasis on her hands. Now this is different from eczema because psoriasis is when you're in the conflict active phase of one separation conflict and you're in the healing phase of a different separation conflict. So now you have conflict activity, cell loss and cell replenishment going on at the same time. And that's gonna have a different label called a psoriasis. This is a girl who was separated from her father when she was two years old. And she also had a step parent that she didn't really get along with. So this is a, I'm, I'm separated from someone I don't wanna be separated from, and I'm with someone that I want to separate from. It goes both ways. So that was, the conflicts occurred several uh, years apart, and that's why they weren't with one DHS, one conflict shock. It was two different conflict shocks. They were both in different phases. This was all over her hands. With the epidermis program, we always look at the location. Where is the rash? Because that gives us an indication of what the conflict shock was. In this right. case, the hands, uh, that's are, an uncommon place, especially the palms you mentioned before. I mean, it's, right. it's unusual um, exactly. to have rashes there. Exactly, right. And this was palms and the backs as well, because I want to keep away from her and I want this person. It was the fronts and the backs for her. This went on for several years. As a 11-year-old, she decided to get rid of milk. She thought, it's the dairy. She read an article or something and said, oh, it's the dairy. So she, as an 11-year-old, cut dairy out of her diet. And the hands got a little bit better, but not a lot better. But it was enough that she was convinced, okay, it's that. And so her parents really couldn't convince her to drink milk anymore. And that was okay with them. Right. And you know, then, I wonder if just a, on a side note, because sometimes like with eczema, at least going off milk does help resolve it. And I'm wondering if milk could represent a separation conflict from the mother, like in terms of weaning. Well, milk is often a track. So a track is established at the moment of the conflict shock. It's what you just ate. It's what you just drank. It's the season, the weather, the barometric pressure, if you're smelling mold or not. These tracks are laid at the moment of the conflict shock. Any one of them can later start the program again. So the milk would be associated with the separation conflict. Oh, I'm drinking milk and I'm separated from the person that I 
You don't right. want to be separated so it's from just it. like an operant stimulus and uh, yeah. operant condition, right? Exactly. So she took the milk out. She did get a little bit better, but it wasn't the cause. It was simply a track. And so her father came back into her life. Uh, by the time she was at the end of being about 11 years old, her father came back into her life and that resolved one of those conflicts. She still had the other one, but by the time she reached 13, she had made peace with this step-parent because she was now becoming older and they had a different relationship. So the whole program resolved. The first one resolved when the father came back into her life. The second one resolved when she got a little bit older and her relationship to her step-parent changed. That's just a natural resolution. She was diagnosed with ADD as well, and that tended to disappear over her teen years. So in this segment, we're going to talk about constellations and also how they relate to dementia. So let's expand more on dementia. I mentioned earlier that it's pretty rampant in our country right now and really around the world as well. So let's let's look a little further at that. We've already talked about the separation conflict. Melissa had a great case study about that, about the child in the palms and what we know is that when there is a person who has a separation conflict, there is a short-term memory loss. And the reason for that is so that we sort of put some distance. We forget about that person that we're separated from. So it's not quite as uncomfortable for us. It's our body's way of coping. For some people that can be a very small program, for other people that can be a much larger program. And the longer that you have it and the more intense it is, the more you're apt to have a, a true memory loss that could perhaps be called dementia. I know, Andy, you know, all the different, you know, labels that allopathy puts on things like that. That's just one example. Well, you know, it's, it's actually uh, kind of interesting because, you know, they do have different names for these different dimensions, right? Like Pick's disease and frontotemporal dementias. There's Alzheimer's disease, you know, vascular dementia, uh, Louis body dementia, all these kinds of things. And, but the thing is, they really can't differentiate them. And really, are they really different entities? Or is it just one thing that presents differently in different people? They do have some findings at autopsy that they say differentiates it, but often there's a lot of overlap. So like, for example, fibrillary tangles or amyloid plaques uh, are present in multiple different types of dementia, and they may be found predominantly in different parts of the brain. Like Lewy body dementia may be related to Parkinson's disease in, in some way because it affects the substantia nigra and you know that part of the motor uh, system. And often people may exhibit similar symptoms like with, in terms of tremor and rigidity. Mm -hmm. uh, but is this really just destruction of the brain and it happens uh, to be in certain locations. And, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to see, are there different conflict shocks that could result in sort of different pathways of dementia? Yes, and that is what's so fascinating. There's basically three different pathways we can take in GNM to look at, you know, the, the label of dementia. And so that gets us into the world of constellations. And I mentioned that in our first teleconference, but a constellation is when you are conflict active with one biological program. So you're upset about something, and then you have an impact of a second program. 
Now there are about 25 configurations of this. So when the second biological program impacts, you constellate, which means there's an instant behavioral change. It might be behavioral, it could be a mood, but there's an instant change, a compulsion of some sort. So if somebody has two separation conflicts, right? One in each hemisphere, then their, their short-term memory loss will be much more pronounced than if it's just one biological program. So that's the first one, the separation conflict, that's memory loss. Another one is the kidney collecting tubule program. And this is really common as well. It's the abandonment existence, refugee conflict, staying in a hospital, feeling like a fish out of water. And so when somebody presents with this constellation, not just one, but two of these, they're conflict active with two kidney collecting tubule programs, then immediately they will feel disoriented. Uh, where am I? Where am I supposed to go? They'll have a poor sense of direction. They'll get lost a lot. There's a sort of a lack of internal or emotional reference points to orient them in their life. Wow. You know, Andy, this is really fascinating because there's one type of condition in the central nervous system that is often, they say it's kind of confused with dementia sometimes because it's the same symptoms, but it involves a combination of what you're talking about, disorientation and memory loss and urinary problems, mainly incontinence. And this is normal pressure hydrocephalus, it's called. Okay. And in that condition, there is uh, basically an expansion of the areas in the brain that hold the spinal fluid, the ventricles. Yep. And, uh, but there's, so that you can see in some other conditions like uh, parasites and tumors where the drainage is blocked. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, the pressure increases and it can put, puts pressure on the brain. But in this condition, the pressure is normal, wow. uh, but there's increased fluid. That is really fascinating. So I'm thinking as well of when I think of the fluid, then it's probably there's so many conflict relapses. And so the fluid is building. So when we go into the healing phase, there's always a, a buildup of edema in the circle in the brain. Well, if there gets to be a lot of that because of conflict relapses, then you'll see other symptoms as well, just mechanically because of that. Right. Wow, that's really fascinating. It's fascinating. So these yeah. are folks that they want to stay home. They really don't want to go out. This would be like agoraphobia. They may have that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and they have lost their that, By the way, that's common in dementia because people recognize that they don't know how to get back also. And right, so there's kind of the fear of what's out there that it's unfamiliar. Right. Right. Exactly. These are folks that, that don't want to go out or if they go out, they're always going to the same restaurant every Friday night. They don't go to a different restaurant. It's always the same one because it feels safe. Right. And, you know, maybe they just have muscle memory to get there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. you know, I mean, there's always safety and structure and routine, right? Because it's predictable. Um, and, you know, when something's predictable, then it's not it's not risky. Right. Exactly to expand upon what you said about the other pathway, the separation conflict. You know, it, it's really interesting because I haven't thought about that angle, but if you look back historically, our culture has changed substantially in the last hundred years, right? Yes, and yeah. you can see this if you go to some other countries where it's more preserved, especially in the developing world, 
where you see multi-generations and extended relatives all living together or right next to each other, you know, providing sort of a community. Even the word family in some other languages really refers to that, not the nuclear family, which is kind of a new, you know, cultural entity. And we have this thing where we, we move around different geographic locations for work. Uh, there's been major urbanization into the cities. And this really separates people because in an urban environment, there's simply too many people to form a community in your geographic area. So you're all split up, you're isolated. And then of course, with the now technology taking the place of social interaction, which is really being pushed during this pandemic, it makes total sense to see an increase in this type of, because we really do have a pandemic of chronic disease, including dementia. And that has been going on. It's not just this year, uh, but the numbers keep going up in terms of how many people are affected. Right, right, exactly. I think it's so powerful to understand these constellations and seeing that it's, you know, because dementia and Alzheimer's, I don't know what you guys, but it's like a scary sort of thing because once a person starts showing signs, the it's like that predictive downfall of people don't come back from this. It only tends to get worse. And when you understand that it's multiple conflicts, that an individual is having this complex experience and due to our modern lives and the separation and the way that we are disconnected from family, you can begin to put those pieces together and start to see, oh, the decline happened around when they lost their spouse or when they got put into the home. And you right. start seeing each of these things and having this in mind, we will restructure how we do things, you know, how we treat our elderly family members, how nursing homes and, you know, things are run, giving people a purpose, giving people a connection, giving them a reason to, to be around, you know, if, if they're feeling separated, how can we help to enhance the feeling of connection? If they're feeling isolated and abandoned, what can we do to help support that person so that they're, you know, not just doomed to a slow decline in a home in front of a TV, which is so sad, but the reality for a lot of people. Yeah, well, you know, we really need these social interactions and uh, we also need to have some kind of sense of purpose. You know, like I'm reminded of a study from nursing homes where they gave plants to residents in two groups. In one group, they had the resident take care of the plant themselves, you know, watering it and opening the shade and such. And the other group, they had a staff member taking care of the plant. And it turns out that the plants only provided a survival benefit, which was pretty significant in the group where they had the responsibility. So it's something about the interaction with another life force and maybe responsibility, obligation, but it's, it's a reciprocal thing, right? Because you then see it grow, you see it bloom, at the right time of year. And, uh, you know, similar studies have shown this with having pets as well. Yes, absolutely. We're really social creatures. We need that connection. And we're biologically wired that way, which is obvious when you know GNM. So the third one that I want to mention is the brainstem constellation. And so this is a little more complicated in that it can be one of five programs that are running. I should say, two programs, it could be the same program twice, or it could be two different programs. And the, the relay for this is the hammer focus, the circle in the brain would be in the brainstem. The five programs would be a GI track, what we'd call a morsel conflict, 
uh, starvation conflict, which is the liver, a death fright conflict, which is the lungs, and the KCT, which we just talked about, the abandonment existence one, or a procreation gender conflict, which is prostate or uterus. So if we have two of those or two of one of those, so there's one in each hemisphere in the brainstem, we will constellate, we change. And that will look like mental confusion. It will look like, you know, you just can't think clearly, like you're kind of frozen. If you see people in a nursing home that are just kind of staring at the wall, that's a brainstem constellation. It could be full-blown catatonia. You know, they're just like vegetables, not coma, but just catatonic. That would be in its extreme. Those are the three pathways for dementia and truly what the behavior looks like and what the allopathic diagnosis is depends on which of these biological programs have been activated. So that will give you the different flavors to mention what Melissa had mentioned earlier about the different flavors. It's the nuances. So when you see oftentimes the KCT program, which is the disorientation one with the separation, that's usually called Alzheimer's. Well, you know, when they using allopathic medicine, there's really no way to differentiate if they do call it a different thing. There's maybe one exception where if you can show on a CT scan, a lot of strokes, they might call that, you know, one thing like vascular dementia, I think is the most recent term, but everything else really, you, you can't differentiate clinically or diagnostically until the person has already passed on. So it's really kind of just a matter of what are the behavioral manifestations and how do we deal with, with those, which usually involves, you know, subduing people with psychiatric medications and putting them in facilities where, you know, they're cared for, but often isolated really from, from social contact and, and certainly from their families. Exactly. And it's the putting them into the nursing homes that causes these issues on a much grander scale. Yeah, certainly. And, uh, you know, I thought it was quite interesting, those five areas you mentioned, because now one of them I'm not sure about, but four out of the five clearly have anatomical structures right in the brainstem directly related to those functions or organs. So quite interesting, like, you know, anatomical correlation with with these constellations. That's fascinating. Yes. You mentioned something earlier, Andy, about the plaque in the brain. And that is something that Dr. Hammer studied quite a bit. And what he realized was the, the plaque was from conflict relapses. So every time the conflict begins again, so this is a reoccurring conflict instead of one that is just present 24 seven, it stops and then something triggers it again and it starts again. And so when that happens, there's a lot of pressure in the brain from the edema. And so it swells and then it it gets larger, gets smaller, gets larger, gets smaller. And the connective tissue around the lesion in the brain is what needs to be shored up in the PCLB phase. And that will be laying down, you know, some plaque over a lot of time just to help shore that area up. So it's not a cause of dementia. I know I've seen studies where people who did not have dementia had the plaque. Yes, absolutely. You know, they they can never, of course, really say that it's a cause because 
you know, you'd have to establish uh, a time relationship, right? It would have to occur first. Right. And then, you know, then what would cause that to occur? So, you know, often these things are really confused because they haven't looked properly at the nature of the relationship. But really what it's talked about is just a diagnostic finding. So you see this and then you identify that particular illness. And, you know, there is an interesting thing with amyloid plaques because there are many illnesses that have these findings under the microscope. In fact, there's a condition even called amyloidosis, which is one of the worst things ever to be diagnosed with, because it basically means that all, all random parts of your body are just, you know, turning to stone. Man, (laughs) yeah. Um, And they just stop working. Um, They become, you know, infiltrated with this plaque. So, but it's a thing that no one in allopathic medicine has any explanation for just, you know, something to suspect when someone is getting sicker and sicker and you don't know why. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's, it's all due to conflict relapses and the programs that begin over and over again. You know, it would be like a great experiment to sort of like go meet with some of the professors who teach the second year medical lectures in medical school, because, you know, that's when they do all the clinical lecturing and compare and contrast with the different, you know, theories Because what you hear time after time is, well, we don't know what the cause is, right? They use words like idiopathic, uh, which we used to make fun of because it's almost the word idiot, right? right, right. But, but, you know, or not otherwise specified all this kind of terminology. And it's like, why don't we know the cause of hardly anything? Right. Yeah. The, when you look up, when you Google different cancers, I mean, it is amazing. Oh, we have no idea. We, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. This is suspected, but we don't know yet. We have so many treatment protocols and things that we do based on what, on not knowing why the body produced this extra tissue. And that's why, you know, GNM has blown my mind in so many ways. And one of them is, is seeing that why would the body produce additional tissue cells for no reason? I mean, that is same thing with the Alzheimer's and dementia. If you think that the body just does things for no reason, it instills this sense of fear within you, fear that your own meat suit could just turn on you at any moment. And there's no rhyme or reason. There's nothing you can do to prevent or avoid it. And, and so it kind of does, it just creates this, this constant sense of fear. And that's why people, you know, they go in and they have their scans and they're checked out because, you know, we have to make sure that these things aren't growing in you because, you know, it could be any moment. And so there's just this unsettling nature of constant fear of our own selves and GNM and understanding that this was a tissue adaptation and seeing it from that lens has changed everything. And it just helps to, to instill in a person that your body did not turn on you. Something happened outside of your awareness. You weren't aware of the way that a shocking circumstance impacted your biology. And that by, you know, kind of tracing things back, looking at the breadcrumbs, what happened, we can put those pieces together. You can understand yourself at such a deep, profound level. You can see how did my biology interpret this situation, this separation conflict, this isolation, this territorial fear conflict. Where did this cough come from? It's not random. It's not the work of a nefarious, very small particle that has you know, an agenda to take over your lungs. That's not what's happening at all whatsoever. And that's why bringing this information to people, it's 
so freeing and it's so calming because you don't have to live in this constant state of, is my body going to turn on me? Is that little bug going to get on me and get in my body and, you know, do its thing? Bacteria do not have agendas. <laughs> little particles, protein part, they don't have agendas apart from you. They work within you and understanding the role of bacteria from the GNM perspective, understanding the, the particles, the exosomes, what the tissues are doing, it's all cause and effect. And when you can see the causative role and the role that you do play, I mean, it's just so empowering to, to see things from this perspective. Yeah, Melissa, that's uh, really important stuff. And you know, certainly in my psychiatric experience, I know that people will not be able to see these connections easily, right? Because they're, they're possibly even avoiding them because they're uncomfortable things. It takes a little effort to bring that out and a realization that you, know, you can actually pay attention and develop insight and mindfulness and those kind of skills so that you can address these things before they get to the point of cancer, hopefully. But also, you know, the most frustrating thing about my medical education was that there was nothing addressed at the root cause. You can provide comfort and perhaps some amelioration of symptoms and suffering, but there's almost nothing that really gets at the root cause. You know, even in the germ theory, where they say the root cause is the germ, well, then, you know, why do some people get infections and not others, right? Right. So, it, so you still, you know, you never get to that root cause. And in natural medicine, if you're out there considering what to do for your own health, like whatever appeals to you, your sensibility, because there are always many ways to heal, make sure that it gets at the root cause um, or has a, a framework to address that. Because otherwise, even if it gets better, temporarily, it, it's not going to go away or it's going to change into something else. And that something else could always be worse. Like, you know, Andy was talking about with the constellation, you know, that things can be additive and, and have this kind of effect. Right. And, and, you know, when you were saying that, I was thinking kind of like someone who has arthritis and even by the conventional explanation that it's just wear and tear as you get old. Okay. So say you have arthritis and then you bang your knee. Well, now you have two things adding up. Now, how's it going to be to walk after that? Yeah. Right. And that's kind of really what you're talking about here. It's, it's amazing when you know German new medicine, when you fully embody it, because I mean, I talk with people who know GNM and they're like, yeah, I had a heart attack last week, but I'm fine. And it's like, what are you kidding? It's like, no, yeah, I had one. And then I had one the week before that too. But you know, I came through this just great. And I knew I was going to, because they know GNM, they knew they would be fine. It, it's like a whole different level of empowerment. And I'm not saying if you think you're going to have a heart attack, stay home. I'm not saying that at all. I'm okay. saying learn GNM so you know <laughs> what's going on. Huh? I said, if you think that, drink some water immediately. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Drink some coffee and prop yourself up. You'll be fine. Put an ice bag on your head. <laughs> But it's truly empowering. And, and the stories that I hear from people and how they use GNM, it's like, oh my gosh, I never thought of that. That's awesome. Just how they resolve their, their conflicts, their ongoing conflicts, or simply make it through their healing phase in, an, in a whole new way. It's just fascinating. Let's just, let's wrap up then. And we want to thank you, um, Dr. Andrew Kaufman for being here. It's wonderful to chat with you again. And I want to promote Melissa because Melissa, you have some amazing programs that you are teaching. Can you tell us about those briefly? 
Oh, sure. Yes. I have a lot of courses that help people to understand themselves. You know, my, my courses don't teach the science of GNM, more application tools for understanding why was it possible for me to have this conflict? If I'm having a conflict and if it's ongoing, developing a skill set of tools for navigating your way out, for developing greater awareness. And so I've got courses uh, that address all sorts of different conflicts. I also do one-on-one -on -one work. Dr. Melissa Sell is my web website and that's where you can find all of that or reach out to me personally if you have uh, questions or you'd like to connect. Yay. Awesome. And I'm Andy Lockmears, andylockmears.com. And I do teach the science of GNM. And I also have programs for people on resolving your hanging healings. And I do a wonderful GNM for practitioner course. So if you're a holistic practitioner and want to start to incorporating this with your clients, check out my website. And I also do a new GNM masterclass and I have something called GNM care, which is, which is help care. We're putting that in, in uh, quotes, healthcare for the 22nd century now using GNM. So again, thank you, Andy, for being here. We really appreciate this. It's great conversation. We hope to continue this. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.